This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone can hear me. Um, Please send me a chat if you can't, a message in the chat. My name is Natalia Brizuela, and I'm the chair of the Center for Latin American Studies at UC Berkeley. And I'm saying UC Berkeley because these virtual events um, bring in people from all over. So just stressing that. And I am thrilled uh, to welcome you and introduce our first event in a series that we began last year where we highlight a new work, scholarship and artistic from faculty members at UC Berkeley. And it is an honor um, for us that Professor Rebecca Herman from the History Department uh, has agreed to inaugurate the series uh, for this year in a conversation on her recently published book, Cooperating with the Colossus, A Social and Political History of U.S. Military Basis in World War II Latin America. Professor Herman is assistant professor in the history department at UC Berkeley, and her work explores 20th century Latin American social and political history in a global context, probing the intersections between grand narratives and local history. She will be joined in conversation and commentaries by Professor Margaret Chowning, who's professor and son I don't know if I pronounced that right, um, chair in Latin American history in the history department at UC Berkeley. Her research interests are Mexico, the late colonial period and 19th century, women, church, and social and economic history in Latin America. And Kyle Jackson, who is a transnational historian of the Americas and a PhD candidate in history, also at UC Berkeley. And his research and dissertation looks at early U.S.-Latin American relations through the prism of New Orleans. So I thank everyone for being here with us. Um, It's exciting to know that there's about 60 people out there right now listening um, and joining. Um, So Professor Herman will give a brief, you know, uh, commentary about the book, and then she'll be joined by Professor Chowning, who will give comments about the book, and then um, Kyle Jackson, and then there'll be a a conversation between them. But at any moment throughout this, please send your questions um, using the Q&A option at the bottom of of your Zoom screen. And we will attempt to get through all of the questions that you pose. But if we happen not to, all of the questions will be shared with our three speakers and particularly Professor Herman. So do not worry. So please also just remember that, pose your questions as they come up and there will be time for them at the end of the discussion between a... Rebecca, Kyle, and Margaret. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Kyle, for agreeing to be part of this conversation. And I will hand it over to you. Wow, thank you so much for that introduction and for this invitation. I am really grateful to be here. 
Um, thanks to Janet for organizing as well. I only realized it as I was kind of putting some remarks together for today that this is really the perfect place to talk about the book for the first time since it came out, because my very first research trip for this project was funded with a grant from Berkeley Center for Latin American Studies. Um, I did my PhD in the history department at Berkeley, and I got a Tinker grant uh, to, to travel to northern Brazil the summer between my second and third year in graduate school. So if there are graduate students on this call who um, are just embarking on a new project, I'm sorry to say that was 11 years ago, <laughs> and the book is coming out this month, but... Um, uh, I'm happy to to talk about that journey from preliminary dissertation research to to published book. If you have questions about that, feel free to reach out. Um, and uh, I can also say that um, if you're feeling like you need to figure out what your project is about right away, that's obviously not the case. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, I'm also very grateful to Margaret and Kyle for being here. Um, I haven't run a marathon in real life, but I think that if you run a marathon, you get all kinds of support along the way that kind of help you get to the finish line. And in my metaphorical marathon, Margaret and Kyle have both been um, really valuable sources of guidance and support and feedback. Um, so this is also just really lovely to have the chance to, to be here with them and talk about it uh, with you all. Um, so as you all know, uh, this is, um, my first book cooperating with the Colossus, a social and political history of U.S. military bases in World War II Latin America. I still haven't held the book in my hands. It is out on ebook already, but the, there's been paper related pandemic delays. Um, and so the, the book has not shipped yet, I think any day now. Um, what that means is I know that none of you have read the book, so that makes my job pretty easy. I can assume that nobody here has, well, I guess I have a few colleagues who have definitely read it, but for the most part, the audience consists of folks who are maybe curious about this book, but haven't had a chance to read it yet. And so in the few minutes that I have, I'm just going to try to introduce you to the sort of major themes in the book, the, the actors that I'm most interested in, and, um, hopefully entice you to pick up a copy when it, when it's available to you. Um, okay, so um, if you're even just a little bit familiar with the history of U.S.-Latin American relations, probably um, what you think of first is intervention rather than cooperation when you think about U.S.-Latin American relations. Uh, the U.S. has a long history of intervening in Latin America militarily, economically, politically, as part of a broader project to assert and, and maintain U.S. hegemony in the region that dates back to the 19th century. Um, and it's that history of intervention that earned the United States the nickname the Colossus of the North. So that's where the, the word Colossus comes from in the title. Um, the period of the Second World War, which is the period that my book focuses on most centrally, stands out in this larger history of U.S.-Latin American relations as this kind of atypical high point. So typically when the war comes up, um, the remarkable thing is that it was this moment where most, almost every country in the Americas banded together, united around the war effort. And so this image that you see on the book cover is a poster, a propaganda poster from the Second World War that celebrated uh, U.S. Latin American cooperation in the war effort. Now, because of this broader history of interventionism, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that U.S. basing was a very, very contentious form of cooperation. And that became the thing that really most interested me about it. 
um, it, it became a way to think about cooperation, which is a long thread in the history of U.S.-Latin American relations, but in a much more critical way. Um, recently, scholars have begun to pay more attention to um, the efforts of folks of all different ideological stripes in Latin America to try to find a way to engage the classes of the North on their own terms and try to make the most of an alliance with the United States or make the most of the United States uh, fixation on the region while constraining U.S. power. So in the fields of, you know, histories of international law, histories of transnational solidarity around things like women's rights, um, there's a lot of scholarship now coming out that is more attentive to those dynamics. So when I talk about cooperating with the Colossus, I'm thinking in this sort of critical way about how people in the region during the Second World War tried to make the most of the United States' sudden attention to the region and willingness to share resources with the region and willingness to send weapons to the region, while also trying to mitigate U.S. overreach and to, to grapple with the real significant asymmetries of power that structured that cooperative relationship. Um, and uh, importantly, I track that effort to cooperate with the Colossus, not just in the realm of high politics, right? You see uh, leaders from Brazil, Cuba, and Panama, who are the three countries that I focus on the most closely in the book, uh, trying to navigate uh, U.S. interests in basing in Latin America and to use bases as bargaining chips to solicit aid for all sorts of their own national um, uh, nation building projects. But you also see efforts from people on the ground trying to cooperate with the Colossus. So workers who are hired to build the bases, uh, women who engage in sex work near bases with U.S. soldiers, um, uh, judges who are trying to assert uh, jurisdiction over criminal actions committed by U.S. servicemen. So in all of these ways, the book is moving between the high political realm and how that relationship is navigated there, and then conflicts that arise around the bases locally, around similar questions of sovereignty, but that manifest in different ways in the, in the lives of ordinary people. Um, I'm going to share my screen and show you a few images. Um, I'm not sure how many minutes I have left because I actually didn't look at the clock when I started, but if, if Janet, if you were keeping track and could let me know, that'd be great. You can continue. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, let me share my screen and then I'll present. Okay. So the first response I often get when I say, oh, I write about U.S. bases in World War II Latin America is we had the U.S. had bases in World War II Latin America. Latin America is not the first region that comes to mind when you think of World War II. It's probably the last region that comes to mind. And thanks to this cartographer uh, that Oxford helped me hire, uh, I can show you. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> the U.S. had a lot of defense sites across Latin America. Now, this map is really busy and overwhelming, so my editor encouraged me to break it into two maps, and these are the ones that ended up in the book. Um, I can talk more uh, if you're interested later in why the U.S. wanted defense sites in Latin America, why they needed them when they hadn't in the same scale uh, before. But I wanted to get more quickly to the heart of what the, the book really looks at, which is um, this, this project of cooperation and all of the conflicts that were built into it. So the book moves from this sort of um, general overview of the history of military basing in Latin America 
that helps get at the baggage that the, the, the basing agenda brought with it into World War II. Guantanamo, which is the most famous U.S. base in Latin America, was one of the few sort of precursors to the wartime project and um, very much a symbol of uh, U.S. imperialism and a lightning rod for anti-U.S. sentiment. And so as U.S. officials went to Latin American counterparts to seek basing rights, Guantanamo was very much uh, looming large. In particular, the extent to which it represented the kinds of violations of Latin American nation sovereignty that uh, the good neighbor policy um, recently instituted was meant to reject. So it follows these kind of high political negotiations and then goes to the ground where the bases were built. And so these governance issues on this slide are sort of the the four central spaces where we see similar conflicts over sovereignty and jurisdiction play out, but in these more concrete ways in the lives of the people who work on and live around the bases. So first I look at fights over labor rights that played out in uh, various ways in different parts of the region. This is a photo of Brazilian workers at the airfield in Berlin, which is one of the places that I look at most closely using uh, records from Brazilian labor courts. Um, here's another image from Natal, which was the United States' biggest air base outside of the United States during World War II. Um, the project also looks at questions of um, race-based and nation-based discrimination, uh, especially in the Panama Canal Zone. And while I didn't have images that really represent that perfectly, this poster on the cover of my book really hints at the kind of the way that cooperation was racialized in ways that often emphasized um, uh, whiteness in the Americas as a sort of common ground. There's this poster that was most widely circulated in Brazil that also shows this theme, right? If you think about um, eh, what most Brazilian brothers in arms look like, this is not exactly the image that comes to mind, but this is the way that it was often portrayed in, in, in propaganda. Um, eh, some Black activists, for example, George Westerman, who was a really important Black activist in Panama during World War II, took advantage of the anti-racist rhetoric that um, often accompanied the U.S. war project or the way that the U.S. publicized the war project in Latin America to advance longstanding um, Black Panamanian desires for better treatment, both within the canal zone and also within Panama. And so the project looks at how these different kind of international and domestic conflicts became entangled during the war in ways that local actors tried to make productive. Um, I also look at uh, uh, social relations, social norms, and gender relations, and how those were impacted in a number of spaces. USO clubs, the USO was created during World War II. And in part, in Brazil, for example, USO clubs were intended to uh, keep U.S. servicemen away from red light districts to the extent possible, to give them social spaces where they could engage with women from elite uh, families who were believed to be less likely to carry venereal disease, but they often created all kinds of um, uh, uh, trouble within elite families, for example, in conservative parts of northern Brazil, where it was unthinkable that uh, a woman from an elite family would accompany a U.S. soldier to a dance unchaperoned. Um, um, I'm going to have to skip over some of these wonderful photos, I think, but we can come back around to them in the Q&A if you're interested. Um, sex work is another area that I look at. Um, so this is a picture of a, of a um, member of the U.S. Navy with a sex worker in Berlin during the war. 
um, another source of conflict and another source of, of conflicts around jurisdiction, specifically because local U.S. officials on the ground would um, elaborate all, all sorts of efforts to, to regulate red light districts, which was obviously beyond um, the, the, their own uh, jurisdictional purview. And then finally, the issue of criminal jurisdiction. This is something that continues to plague U.S. basing efforts to this day, despite the fact that unlike during World War II, there are really extensive um, agreements drawn up around basing that address the issues of criminal jurisdiction. So this was a family in Panama who lived near a U.S. defense site where a drunken soldier set fire to to their home. And there was a big um, conflict between the government of Panama and the government of the United States about who should who should be um entitled to uh, try the soldiers who is responsible. So that gives you a little bit of a sense for the kinds of stories. Um, hold on, let me close this so that I can see my notes again, uh, that are in the core of the book. Um, there we go. And as a Latin Americanist, one of the things that I'm most interested in as I look at these stories is the extent to which they were especially powerful because it, they were in they were areas that were um the source of ongoing debates in domestic politics so this is a moment in which the fight for labor rights has made a significant progress in the 1930s and so suddenly this issue that really has nothing to do with us power becomes entangled with us power because when us defense contractors begin denying labor newly won labor rights to the workers that they're employing uh, those workers are able to draw uh, sort of anti-imperialist rhetoric into their quest to enforce these newly won labor rights and see that those newly won labor rights are upheld. Um, at the end of the book, I think about the fate of these bases and the extent to which popular protests prevented uh, the extension of basing rights, even in places where uh, local governments were willing to extend them. And I think about the sort of longer legacy of World War II security cooperation in the region. Um, I hope that gives you just a little bit of a taste of the book. Ten minutes is a, is a, is a short time to cover um, uh, 400 or 350 pages. But I welcome your questions and look forward to, to hearing what Margaret and Kyle have to say. Well, as they say in the congressional hearings, I'm glad to yield back uh, some time to you if you need a little bit more time, Rebecca. But uh, why don't I um, why don't I go ahead and say what I had to say, which I think is probably going to be less than ten minutes. Um, so uh, I decided um, I wasn't sure what you would be saying to, uh, in by way of summarizing the book. So. I decided to think about, um, I am a Latin American historian, and I'm supposing that much of the audience for this webinar is uh, interested in Latin America and might be interested in uh, my take uh, on the importance of this book sort of within our, I'm not going to talk about historiography, I'm not going to talk about all of the good recent books that Becca alluded to that have been, uh, that are beginning to come out on this period. I'm just going to talk about how I think this impacts sort of almost the way that you teach modern Latin America um, or understand it at a kind of broad teaching uh, level. I've always 
uh, one of, it's not the only judgment I make about books that I read, but one of the judgments I make about books that I read is whether it changes my lectures. And um, I think this is a book that changes lectures. And let me explain why. Um, most people who uh, write textbooks about Latin America, who write about Latin America in any kind of a 20th century Latin America in any kind of broad way or lecture on 20th century Latin America, don't pay too much attention to World War II. Um, Latin America was not, despite all of those military bases, not really a, a battleground, I guess the Caribbean a little bit, but um, maybe those bases did their job and there wasn't much fighting. Uh, there wasn't fighting in Latin America itself. So it just hasn't seemed like the kind of thing that would have a, a, a big enough impact to devote time in your lecture or in your textbook to it. So for example, two recent textbooks that um, uh, that just came out this year, in fact, Alexander Dawson's Latin America Since Independence, which is sort of textbook plus primary sources, and Mark Wasserman's Latin America Since 1800. Um, uh, neither one of those has, uh, as far as I can tell, you know, textbook uh, editor, authors and their publishers don't want to put them online. <laughs> so um, I haven't uh, confirmed this, but just to judge by the table of contents, it appears that the war seems to be subsumed under sections uh, that kind of cover the roughly that uh, period of time. So sections on populism, sections on the growth of the American empire in Latin America, uh, the the Cold War coming out of World War, the hot war in World War II. Uh, in the case of the Wasserman book, I, the, the description of a chapter called Between Revolutions, which is between the Mexican Revolution and the Cuban Revolution, um, the, the description does say it's that the, the impact of World War II is part of the, the discussion. I can't tell you what he has to say about it, but the chapter title gives you a clue that the most important thing to Wasserman about this, this period during which World War II occurs is uh, are the two revolutions on either side of it. So um, basically in these textbooks and in most teaching, I think um, people would, most of us would agree that the political story kind of moves from um, the rise of mass politics, populism beginning in the 1920s and the 1930s through to the Cold War in the 1940s and 1950s. Then we add to the Cold War dictatorships uh, beginning in the 1960s. And the war, if you picture a kind of uh narrative, the war doesn't really produce much of a blip in those, um, in those narratives. Uh, the social history story, uh, which Becca's book contributes so much to, um, as you can probably tell from that brief summary, also doesn't change markedly because of the war. 
Um, the social press processes, again, begin sort of in the 1920s, urbanization, the growth of the labor movement, the great growth of uh, middle class, middle sectors. Again, not too much of a, not too much of a blip produced by the war. There's um, coming to be a bit of a cultural history story associated with the war, and the cover image of the book is um, is an indication of uh, the kind of documents and uh, and images that some historians have begun to use studying propaganda, studying cultural missions to the United States in the context of the war, which I think gets us a little closer to uh, Becca's book and to seeing the war as something kind of generative and transforming. But it's still, uh, I would say a lot of that, uh, not to paint with too broad a brush, a lot of this work kind of um, seems to be seeking the early roots of the Cold War. Uh, So it's not so much the war itself that's transforming as the way the world order was reshaped by the defeat of fascism, the rise of the Soviet Union and other communist states uh, after the war. There is a third recent textbook, which I have read uh, because it was published by UC Press, and I I actually read it for the the press uh, a few years ago. This one is a book... um, uh, by um, Michael Con- Mike Conniff, um, uh, uh, Lawrence Clayton, and Susan Gauss, uh, a, a little bit more of a sort of traditional textbook, and it does devote 13 pages to what's called Latin America in World War II. But I think the nature of this section uh, illustrates what I've been trying to say. The story is pretty much dominated, the story, the narrative is created by Um, U.S. entreaties to Latin America as the war ramps up to aid in hemispheric defense. And of course, the bases are part of that. Um, And uh, the story of most Latin American countries, Argentina, uh, they say, is the big exception, uh, getting on board with this plan. Um, Although Uh, Part of the story also uh, is that the shrewdest leaders get something in return. There's a picture of um, uh, Getulio Vargas with Roosevelt and some generals all in a a car. Maybe you've seen it, Becca. Uh, And they're all laughing at something that's really obviously hilarious. You wonder what language is people are speaking in that made everyone laugh so hard. Uh, um, And the caption reads, Vargas had struck a good bargain in exchange for leasing the base. And it follows by uh, pointing to uh, a Volta Redonda in um, the steel steel complex that the United States helped to to fund. So it's kind of a picture of uh, Latin American leaders receiving financial aid in exchange for cooperation uh, in and uh, the beginnings of the flow of, according to this these authors, military assistance begins to flow south. So um, narrowly, Becca's book doesn't contradict that story, but it just tells us so much more. And in telling us so much more, I think, makes us see the war, the war itself as as itself a change, an agent of change, right? So uh, stepping back a little bo- bit by bringing in the people who live around the bases uh, that she, that Becca uh, summarized, um, 
to whom, as the chapters in these textbooks on populism make clear, the leaders who were approached by the U.S. were indebted to those people to agree ne- a degree never before seen in Latin American history. So basically, um, it mattered what people around the bases uh, potentially mattered, uh, because these are the people who keep populists in office, either through elections or through in other means of mass politics that had not been part of the story uh, in the in the 19th century. So when people protested the way their daughters were treated at the USO dances or that their houses were burned down um, or something else that happened in the building of the bases, the n- local and then if if it was kicked up uh, to the national level, national le- leaders had to pay at least some attention. So in other words, sovereignty, uh, or at least the perception of sovereignty becomes really uh, Im- important in a way that, again, it hadn't been in U.S. relationships with Latin America in the 19th century. So the story in these books, which makes it seem like, you know, the U.S. wants something, Latin America gives it in exchange for something, leaves out this whole story of the the importance of the social history to the history of basing and to the and to the the political history and to the themes struck by national leaders who never stopped talking about sovereignty and how important it was that was a one of the one of the roots to like re-election and re reappointment so the calculus for leadership uh changed um and it changed maybe it would have changed uh anyway in the course of some kind of imagined Cold War. But what we know is that it starts with these bases and that those are the experiments in how cooperation could also serve sovereignty uh, come in the course of the, this, this process. Um, so, um, yeah, I think uh, that's, that's the, the, to me, the, the, the real gist of linking those local stories of basing to the national leaders, to the international story. Uh, This is, uh, I I think it it does come away with giving us a whole, a new appreciation for the, what the war meant for Latin America, because these are not small issues at all. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that, Margaret. And you set me up well, actually. Uh, (laughs) Because uh, as someone who technically is a, you know, I'm a transnational historian, but technically my work uh, focuses on U.S. history, I'm hoping to add a little bit of perspective, uh, both from an earlier period, because my work focuses on the long 19th century. Um, and I think uh, in some ways, Becca's uh, story picks up on a lot of the themes that uh, I'm trying to trace back a little bit further in, in, in history. But uh, to the point you just made, uh, Margaret, about the importance of uh, Becca's approach and methodology of this social history, this ground up approach to diplomatic and military history. I think that's a really important contribution that has major implications for how we look at the longer history of U.S. foreign relations and U.S. Latin American relations. Um, and, you know, one way I think that's important is that it helps us avoid the trap of projecting U.S. hegemony backwards 
further than when it was an actual fact. Uh, in the 19th century, the United States was by no means a hegemon in uh, the Western Hemisphere. That was Great Britain. Um, and, and I also think it helps uh, us avoid you know, overstating or oversimplifying the degree to which the United States could dictate terms abroad. Um, that power, of course, would grow exponentially over the course of the 20th century. But as I think uh, the book powerfully demonstrates, that power to dictate terms was always mediated by Latin American agency and strategy. And that's both in, in the realm of social politics, mass politics, and at the uh, high politics diplomatic level. Um, also, this uh, bottom-up approach to diplomatic history, I think, calls attention to the real and significant fact that U.S. architects of Pan-Americanism, the good neighbor policy, security cooperation, uh, hemispheric economic integration, always had to grapple with the political and social realities on the ground in Latin American countries. So the uh, kind of unidirectional um, way that we often think about U.S. imperialism or the uh, growth of U.S. power in the 20th century, um, you know, was always uh, in, in, in a dialectic, it was always uh, being shaped in significant ways by things that were far outside of the control of the uh, U.S. architects who, who aspired to have a sort of uh, hemispheric hegemonic uh, control. So in terms of what I think this adds uh, to our story of the long 19th century, you know, uh, I was struck by the degree to which the underlying dynamic that Becker describes, this um, back and forth in this Latin American agency that, that both delineated the extent and the limits of U.S. power, I think in some ways uh, what Becker describes in the World War II era is a high watermark that represents a big shift. But it's also very similar to what I witnessed in my own research about the 19th century. So in the 19th century, the United States was a rising power, um, but it was not, as I said, a hemispheric hegemon. There's Britain, which is the dominant power. There's France, there's Spain, and eventually Germany and Japan all are vying for power. And so uh, as Latin American nation states were dealing with these European or um, North American powers, the power asymmetries were less. Um, there was uh, a greater degree of give and take depending on um, sort of the, the individual circumstances that were being negotiated. Um, in, in the broadest sense, I think what struck me the most as an as a element of continuity is that both in the 19th century and very much so in this 20th century uh, World War II era story, there's a, a consistent pairing of economic objectives and security objectives that I think speaks to the larger phenomenon of, of the entwined emergence of capitalism and militarism in the Western hemisphere that, um, you know, in many ways is present throughout the entire history of, uh, you know, from Latin American independence and U.S. independence um, and, and the, the, the decolonization of the Americas in the early 19th century um, that stretches uh, well into the 20th and even into the 21st century. Um, I think there are 
really important forerunners uh, of many of the tools and tactics that Becca describes. Um, in, you know, in the early 20th century, we have this heyday of what U.S. Uh, foreign relations scholars call uh, dollar diplomacy or gunboat diplomacy, uh, essentially using financial and military power of uh, U.S. Uh, interests to uh, to hold out as either a threat or an enticement to get what they wanted from Latin American countries, which was often access to ports, uh, actual territorial possessions, coaling stations with the advent of steamships, and to uh, always have access to these beachheads that that these different imperial powers, such as the United States, believed would uh, enable them to further their, their strategic interests. Um, and then in terms of the... Uh, the the immediate prologue to, to the World War II story, I think the era of the Mexican Revolution and the, the, the heyday of formal intervention that we associate with the first decades of the early 20th century in the greater Caribbean, um, that era of, of, of U.S. military intervention, which uh, very much intersected with two of the major case study countries in the book, Cuba and Panama, um, that moment and those tactics of uh, pursuing security or order for the benefit of essentially industrial or finance capitalism um, set the tone for uh, for what happens throughout the rest of the 20th century, which, and by that I mean, uh, in that earlier era, the war, instability, revolution in Latin America came to be conceived of as a shared problem that threatened the global capitalist order, the global banking system, the global commercial networks, um, and therefore demanded a collective military response. Um, so I, I think that the, the, the seeds of security cooperation that were sown in uh, the collaborative effort to suppress Mexican revolutionaries uh, operating in the borderlands regions of the United States um, and, and the more formal military intervention in many countries around the greater Caribbean in that era before the good neighbor policy, um, you know, led to this, this larger project or, or helped uh, provide a, a, a more global scale or hemispheric scale to the project of collective security and security cooperation. Um, running out of time here a little bit, but I just want to uh, speak a little bit to how I think this helps 19th century historians and how 19th century historians might speak to the questions that Becca's asking. So cooperating the Colossus to me is the culmination of a more than century long process of military and economic integration in the hemisphere, but it's coming out of a new reality that was fundamentally shaped by the new economic and imperial order coming out of World War I. That, you know, cataclysmic event is what essentially established the United States as a global economic powerhouse and military, um, and, and military leader. Uh, so this, this new uh, moment and this new order of things that comes out of World War I um, 
in some ways can help us understand the the more limited aspects of um, U.S. power in earlier eras. And for 19th century historians who see hemispheric foreign policy through the framework of empire, development, modernization, um, I think they can look to the story that Becca describes uh, and understand better how these tactics of intervention and security cooperation in earlier eras evolved and changed and responded to new pressures and uh, new institutions and new um, projects that that were growing out of World War II and leading into the Cold War. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying that I think that, you know, there's a lot that 19th century historians can learn by looking to this uh, culmination. And I think in order to understand how we get to the good neighbor era and the security cooperation that Becca describes, it's useful to look at the earlier waves and earlier examples of uh, similar but fundamentally um, distinct incarnations of these tactics in earlier eras. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you all for your wonderful presentations. I think we're all now looking forward to read that book when it comes out. Um, we've been sharing in the chat a promo code that we have available for the audience who's listening to this webinar. Um, I don't know if, Rebecca, you have any questions for Kyle or Kyle, if you have any questions for Rebecca or Professor Chowning, I want to give you the space to um, ask questions between the three of you or any comments that you might have on each other's presentations. This, I don't know this is a question or if I'm just thinking out loud, but I was struck um, when, so when Margaret was talking and noticing that a lot of the, um, what coverage World War II does get is often as a prelude to the Cold War. Um, so there's sort of the tendency to kind of look from the war forward or and then Kyle's thinking about how to look from the war backwards. And that was actually something that I really, um, it, it took some time to figure out as I was working on the book if I was doing either of those things or having, you know, centering the war in its own right. And so I just thought it was interesting that in this kind of in this moment where we're thinking about uh, the war looking forward in time, the war looking backward in time, that um, I really did come to think of it more as a pivot point um, that was useful for um, both of those things, really, right? Like thinking about a, th a through line that I hadn't personally been attentive to when I began studying the history of Latin America that became more obvious to me over the course of my research. I, I, just think, that oh, just, I think that framing of a pivot is really interesting. And I wonder if you feel the same way about the the, the proclamation of, of a, a fundamental shift in with the good neighbor policy, you mm. know? Like that is presented often as like a big sea change in the way mm -hmm. that the United States was approaching its affairs in Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that was uh, a, <laughs> a a transformation that was accepted by Latin Americans themselves? Did they also see it as a sea change or did they sort of see it more as a kind of another rhetorical manifestation of, oh, we're all Pan-American sister republics mm -hmm. and, and more as like a smokescreen to... Mm -hmm. To, to hide a, a fundamentally continuous policy. 
I mean, the most common way I see it employed in Latin America is this is like the perfect, let's, let's force the U.S. government to make good on this rhetoric, right? Mm. Like we know that this is partly PR, this is partly strategic, but it gives us this vocabulary that we can use to try to hold the State Department's feet to the fire and try to force the good neighbor policy into being. Um, I don't know if there are undergrads in the in the room, but I'm teaching a class on the U.S. and Latin America in the spring in which one of the exam questions is often was the good did the good neighbor era mark a point of continuity or a point of change? And you can answer it. You know, you can give either answer and support it well and get all the points for the question. So I think that that's a really useful also exercise just for thinking about um, uh, different different ways of framing the past. Becca, I, w- I wonder if you want to um, give just uh, a one, maybe one concrete example from uh, the book about um, about uh, how people living near the base challenged jurisdictions and challenged base governance. Um, I don't know the the some of the some of the stuff that you got from the um, Belém mm-hmm. uh, archives, the labor labor records there, that that was such. That, describe the source if you feel like doing. Yeah, that. sure. Describe the source, and then talk about how you how you got this out of that source. Yeah, um, I'm happy to. So uh, this was one of the big challenges of this project, especially as I'm learning with a second project where source bases are much easier to find. The bases were initially built in secret. And so there was that makes a problem when you're looking for a paper trail. Um, and, uh, I'm a social historian at heart. So I was really interested in the social histories of these bases. And those are just harder sources to find, uh, particularly in the 1940s in the countries where I was working. And so the labor story was one where I knew I stood some chance of finding sources, um, because I had, so one interesting part of the story that I didn't mention in my 10 minutes was that it was actually the airline Pan American Airways that was contracted to build most of these defense sites uh, before um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And part of that was strategic because Pan Am could do it under the guise of commercial expansion. And so the War Department, you know, um, provided the the blueprints and the engineering plans and the president FDR's emergency funds provided the money, but then Pan Am would go and negotiate directly with host governments about the sort of any permissions required to build the the airfields and then hire workers themselves rather than have the Army Corps of Engineers hire them, for example. Um, So uh, what ends up happening in, in a lot of parts in both Brazil and Cuba, both Brazil and Cuba saw the advent of new and very progressive labor legislation in the 1930s, in a lot of cases more progressive than what what existed in the United States at that point. And the U.S. government was really eager to kind of sidestep a lot of these new labor rights because they slowed down construction or they made it more expensive. And in Brazil, uh, Vargas had created a network of labor courts um, in the very early 1940s. And so some of the very first cases that were um, taken to these courts had to do with Brazilian labor complaints on U.S. defense uh, defense construction sites. And so that created this really fascinating place where domestic and international politics kind of collided head on because, um, you know, on the one hand, labor legislation was one of Vargas's sort of flagship populist nationalist uh, 
initiatives remains one of his biggest legacies on on the Brazilian justice system. Uh, on the other hand, Bra Brazil became the United States' most important ally in a lot of ways in Latin America. So um, workers really pressed those fissures, right, by bringing cases against Pan Am or Pan Am's Brazilian subsidiary, Pan Air, to the labor courts. And that was a place where you could actually find, you know, traces of the experiences of workers who are not as well represented in the archival record as, you know, diplomats. Um, it took a lot of digging because those records were not preserved for the most part. So I, I went to all the labor courts that had existed at the time and, and, um, until the 80s, there was a, a law in the books that you could dispose of those records after 15 years. And so in most places, those those records weren't preserved. But in Belen, incredibly, they were. And so we found, uh, I think it was five or 600 cases against Pan Air in that labor court. Um, and that allowed me to reconstruct this story. And then the sort of diplomatic exchanges, Pan Am's corporate records, you could piece together all of the different interests that had a stake in the outcome of these court cases trying to jockey to make sure that their interests won the day. Um, and it also provides an opportunity to see how a nationalist like Vargas could continue to, you know, ring the bell of national sovereignty and really insist on his nationalist credentials while co collaborating with the United States, while really quietly diminishing sovereignty behind the scenes. So his Ministry of Labor ultimately ended up leaning on the courts to interpret the law in the way that represented U.S. interests. Um, and and effectively managed to give the U.S. exemption from certain provisions of Brazilian labor law without uh, publicly doing so, without uh, issuing any kind of a formal exemption that would have provoked a lot of backlash for both Vargas and the United States. So these social histories, again, it's not just to sort of add color to the international story or to talk about the regular people instead of just talking about diplomats, but there's a lot of... Um, sort of an iterative quality to these stories, right? So you see the way that local workers just taking their cases to courts ends up having these ripple effects in the diplomatic sphere. And then all of this dip diplomatic maneuvering ends up uh, in turn having an impact on how labor, labor rights are, are upheld or not um, in places where those are sort of ongoing domestic struggles, ongoing social struggles. I don't know if you have any other comments or questions before jumping into the questions from the audience. Nope. I'm happy to take audience okay. questions. We have many questions. Okay. Um, okay, I'm gonna start with one and I'm gonna mix it with the second one. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest base outside of the US in World War II or the biggest one in Latin America? And the second question um, about this is how many of the bases remain? Is Guantanamo one of the few left or do most remain? Mm. Oh, those are both great questions. So the first one, um, the U.S. air base in Natal in Brazil, which is sort of the northeasternmost point of the Brazilian coastline, was the biggest, as I understand it, the biggest air base outside of U.S. continental borders. And Brazilians call it the trampoline to victory. It was the springboard to victory because it ended up being really crucial for the United States to ferry supplies across the South Atlantic. Um and Brazilians are super proud of, of the Brazilian contribution to the war effort. And I think often feel that it's not given sufficient attention in histories of the Second World War. Um, so, yeah, that was the biggest one. Um, in terms of what happened with the bases, um, 
So in most, in many places, World War II, first of all, the U.S. basing now is a global thing that we all kind of take for granted that it exists and is part of the U.S. global military footprint. Before the war, the U.S. had only 14 bases, and most of those were on, uh, in colonial spaces. Um, and then during the war, there was this huge expansion in U.S. basing and a contraction after the war, but never to pre-war levels. Um, so the global military footprint really dates in its current scale to to the Second World War, and there have been periods of expansion and contraction. But um, all of so all of these issues that 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 relate specifically to the challenge of overseas basing on sovereign soil, like it's just there's a, just a contradiction built in, right? Extraterritorial um, uh, authority on sovereign soil is is a thorny issue. So. Uh, in the years immediately following the war, the U.S. gave up a lot of defense sites that they didn't um, need anymore, that they weren't interested in retaining. And then there were a, a bunch of key sites that they wanted to retain and that they wanted to retain in the long term. And so with um, all, all three of the countries I focus on the most closely, Brazil, Cuba and Panama, the U.S. attempted to extend uh, its rights to occupy certain of the bases that it had created during the war. Uh, Panama and Brazil both agreed to negotiate new uh, agreements. Um, in the case of Panama, there was even a, a treaty that was reached between the foreign ministries, but then massive popular protests erupted on the streets. I mean, just massive, massive protests that are often thought about now in hindsight as a starting point for the end of the U.S. Um, governance in the Canal Zone that prevented the, the Panamanian National Assembly from approving the treaty. And so ultimately that attempt collapsed and the U.S. evacuated the bases outside of the canal zone. Um, in Brazil, Vargas was removed from power and uh, it was just sort of politically untenable, particularly after the war. Communists in Latin America were in a position to criticize the United States again during the war because the Soviet Union was a U.S. ally. Uh, communist parties in Latin America didn't seize the basing issue um, for all of the fodder that it would provide um, after the war they did. And so uh, you had a lot of protests ongoing around the continuing presence of the U.S. in Brazil that ultimately uh, forced the, the U.S. To, to leave as well. Um, the other thing is that during World War II, the United States became much closer to the Latin American security forces than it had ever been before, in part in uh, sort of as a diplomatic gesture. And securing these really enhanced relationships with Latin American armed forces diminished the need for bases because if they could feel confident that they could access bases as needed, then that was even better because it was cheaper, right? Um, so as the inter-American military system became formalized in the years after the war, the sort of value of basing was diminished somewhat in the Western Hemisphere, even though the U.S. maintained a much stronger military footprint everywhere else. Thank you. Um, I have a second question about Brazil mm -hmm. uh, from Laura Bellic. Congratulations on the book. I cannot wait to read it. Part of my doctoral research looks at the posos and recruitment centers for rubber soldiers mm -hmm. going from Ceará to the Amazon in the 1940s. The entire SEMTA, Special Service Sending Brazilian Workers to the Amazon program, mm -hmm. was mostly funded with U.S. money at that time with active support from the U.S. Navy and along the way. I would love to hear more about the contact and connections between the U.S. Army bases and the spaces that served the Brazilian military, Brazilian workers in support of the U.S. at that time. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I'm excited to hear about your research. I'd love for you to reach out after um, the session. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, raw materials were sort of among the strategic interests that the U.S. had in Latin America during the Second World War. One were um, air bases that could help the U.S. military to prevent any kind of access aggression, like extra hemispheric invasion of the Americas. Uh, but another really important one was access to raw materials that would be important to the war effort. And rubber was a huge one. And so there was this really big U.S. investment in revitalizing the Amazon, uh, the Amazonian rubber industry um, during the war and really great, rich labor histories about the people who worked in the rubber industry, who were recruited from um, the Northeast and, and went to the Amazon to, to, to tap rubber. Um, so they're related insofar as they form part of the this sort of broader uh, project. They also both represented areas where the U.S. security objectives and Vargas's nation building objectives dovetailed really nicely because... Um, so this is a moment when civil aviation is advancing and uh, civil aviation infrastructure was really appealing to Latin American governments who were entertaining the U.S. government's requests to build out that kind of infrastructure. So for, for Julio Vargas, it was a no brainer that if the United States was willing to spend its own money building, you know, modern airports and uh, easing all of the really difficult challenges that um, transportation in the Amazon presented, that that was um something to take advantage of. And the same thing goes for the rubber industry. Um, so U.S. investments in trying to revitalize the rubber industry that had really suffered in the early 20th century um, and uh, employment of, you know, workers who were otherwise suffering from drought and unemployment in the Northeast. These were all ways that the defense effort and, and agreeing to cooperate with the Colossus could really benefit um, his country and his uh, credentials. Thank you. I have another question from Elena Schneider. Um, thank you all for this panel. I once heard an eminent historian describe writing comparative history something like trying to play an accordion. Like, <laughs> can you speak with us about some of the challenges of putting Brazil, Panama, and Cuba in the same frame, and also some of what you were able to see differently by doing so, when so many 20th century historians don't? And I invite also Margaret Tony and Kyle Jackson to jump in and add any comments you want to these questions. Yeah, Elena, that's such a great question. Thank you. I know that you've watched me try to juggle this, this, um, effort to bring such three sort of distinctive places with very different historical relationships with the United States, really different geopolitical positions going into the war and to try to do justice to the uniqueness of each of those experiences and to think about how uh, all of those differences impacted the way that this similar story played out in different um, contexts. Um, you know, I tried to do that in a couple of ways. One was it ended up so I chose these three places because they were they were the most important sites from the U.S. government's perspective when they set out to build airfields and so it was more about um, uh, the sort of substantive story but it ended up being really methodologically rich because Brazil for example was in such a different position from Cuba and 
the U.S. military represented something very different to Cubans who had experienced repeated U.S. military occupations and interventions. That was very different than the Brazilian experience, where um, you know many Brazilians had never met a U.S. soldier, had a, had different um, uh, experiences with the history of U.S. empire, um, and so. Um, one of the challenges when writing the book was to recognize that it was both a transnational story and also a comparative one. And um, I tried to always keep those, the sort of potential of those two perspectives in mind uh, when moving around in different parts of the book. Um, uh, One of the, to go back to the labor example, since I've talked about that already, that chapter focuses on Brazil and Cuba, which share similarities insofar as they both were sites of these really progressive um, advances in labor legislation in the 1930s. And in both places, um, labor rights became one of the first sort of jurisdictional areas of of contestation on the ground. And you can see the difference in the position that each government was in, in the way that that played out. In Cuba, um, the U.S. manages to successfully elicit a formal exemption from certain provisions of Cuban labor law, um, sort of building on previous diplomatic relationships and leveraging um, that longer history, whereas in Brazil, um, the the sort of the way that a similar outcome materializes takes a different course. Um, it's also interesting in sort of the um, the chapters that deal with uh, sort of social relations, the way that um, certain aspects of the U.S. military presence resonate for people. The way that you know Cubans, for example, talk about the U.S. presence is very different than the way that Brazilians perceive the arrival of U.S. soldiers and then over time grow to resent it. So. Again, it's tricky because you don't want to be too in the weeds all the time, um, but I definitely try to keep those differences front of mind and not just collapse the stories into one narrative. I don't know if Margaret or Kyle, you want to say anything about your impression of my management of that challenge? I, I think you do a great job. Uh, I guess I w- the only thing I would add is that I think the comparative approach is useful for, in some ways, um, reminding us of the importance of geography and mm-hmm. the differing geostrategic uh, importance and, and, and imperatives for each country and how those dictate the postures that they're, that they bring to uh, dipl- diplomatic or uh, military negotiations. So I think, you know, in my work, I try to talk about like networks of ports and, you know, understanding the different positions of each of those places um, really helps you understand what, why the politics of each are different, why the, uh, the, the questions of labor are different in each and, and how all those factors bear upon the, 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 the high politics stuff that, that I think you persuasively argue um, is coming from the bottom up as well. Um, there's several questions uh, related to the maps you shared. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you would like to share them again. I don't know. I know we didn't have much time back then to go. Yeah, sure. Images. Yeah, the, I, I did just see someone had asked if the maps would be in the book and they are. Okay. Um, these two are. Here, let me share it. Yeah. One of the questions says, I'm curious about the exceptions to the construction of bases or engaging in this cooperation intervention policy. What other cases were there besides Argentina? 
did I see correctly the map and El Salvador was not part of these two? Here, let me open this. I think Fonseca is El Salvador, if I'm not mistaken. Did that work? Yes. Yes. Um, oh, so I should say the base, the the maps, the way these maps came about was I just kind of kept a running list as I was going through um, the archives. There's no one list. There was no one program to build the defense sites. As I mentioned, Pan Am built a lot of them, but then some of them were built above board after the attack on Pearl Harbor, particularly the ones on the Pacific coast of South America for the most part. Um, in Cuba, one of the bases I look at most closely was not a Pan Am base, but the others that had been built earlier were. And so it was kind of this hodgepodge mix of all of these different defense sites. I should also say I'm using the term base pretty loosely because at the time they used airbase and airfield interchangeably, my actors did. So sometimes what I'm talking about, like Natal, as we talked about, was the biggest U.S. airbase outside of continental borders. That's probably what you picture when you picture an airbase. Other times it might have been, um, there was kind of a rinky-dink airport that some commercial airlines tried to use. And then in World War II, the U.S. War Department hired Pan Am to pave the runway is add communications facilities, beef them up. And so sometimes it meant just enhancing, modernizing, expanding existing airports in a way that would make them uh, uh, capable of serving U.S. strategic interests. Um, The broader term I use in the book, so that's how I use uh, air bases and airfields. Defense installations or defense sites is a broader category that includes... um, particularly a number of locations in Panama. So Panama hosted 134 U.S. defense sites outside of the canal zone. So that doesn't even count the the sites within the canal zone. But sometimes those defense sites were radio installations. So the defense sites term is more inclusive. You'll see it's one of my first footnotes where I kind of spell out these these definitions in the book. Um, So what I found... So this is all to say this may this map may be incomplete. I fully anticipate that if there are military buffs out there from different parts of Latin America, that they may reach out to me and say, oh, you totally missed this defense site that, you know, I didn't know existed. Um, But I found it really valuable to be able to visualize because what U.S. strategists had in mind when they when they wanted to acquire these sites was they wanted to create the infrastructure that the U.S. would need to unilaterally defend the hemisphere from an extra hemispheric aggression. And because this was a moment of big advances in aviation technology, the U.S. was more vulnerable than it had been in the past. But aviation technology was still not so advanced that you could travel very far in an airplane (laughs) from point A to point B. And so that's why there are so many sites, because they wanted them at three to four hundred mile intervals. Um, And having the maps, I feel like, helps you see comprehensively what that sort of chain, what that chain would look like. Um, Yeah, now I can't remember what the question was. Were there other questions? I could follow up with a little mini question about that. Um, was the presence of actual U.S. military personnel at these defense sites uh, uniform? Was it the exception? Was it the rule? Or, I mean, a lot of the ones you highlight in the book are really like major yeah. sites where there's USO clubs and very right. visible U.S. military presence. But uh, are U.S. military personnel involved in all of these sites or just uh, some of them? 
Yeah, great question. So this is another place where from site to site, it varies dramatically. And I try to be very careful in setting this up in the introduction to the book so that people don't get the wrong idea. In Mexico, for example, Cardenas was insistent that the um, U.S., technicians, servicemen who were stationed at the sites, dress in plain clothes. So there were a lot of efforts to try to diminish the visibility of the U.S. military presence in different places. So there were places where um, there were very small contingents, and then there were places that were much larger. And the places that I foreground in each of the countries that I focus on in the book are places that had a larger presence, because part of what I'm so interested in is how that presence precipitates these conflicts over sovereignty uh, in everyday life. Did any of these particular experiences or situations in this region led to or contribute the development of the current status of forces agreement practice used nowadays? Mm. That's something I've wondered a lot about. And since my focus has been more on the Latin American histories of these bases, it's not a through line that I followed into the post-war era, but it was definitely... It's something that when I meet other people who work on basing in other parts of the world, I'm really eager to hear their expertise about. One of the things that's so interesting in Latin America during World War II is that um, U.S. officials keep coming back around every time. There are many instances in which they consider formalizing the sort of ad hoc governance arrangements that they do come to establish on the grounded basis. So to take the question of criminal jurisdiction, which is one of the first things you think of with status of forces agreements, there's no agreement. In fact, Latin American governments will not concede that the United States is entitled to exercise jurisdiction over its own servicemen while abroad. The U.S. government maintains that it's a right under international law and sort of clings to that sort of vague reference to international law to to um, assert its authority, but no nationalist in office is able to say, okay, the U.S. can have extraterritorial authority on our land. And they take it many, uh, particularly, you know, uh, judges, police officers take offense at the notion that they are not competent to uh, exercise jurisdiction over U.S. servicemen. They take it as a, as a sort of a, an illustration of the United States once again, um, uh, you know, treating Latin Americans as inferior partners or as junior partners. Um, so this is a really sore subject. Um, but in practice, it, at every base that I look at, the U.S. US authorities do manage to exert uh, authority over most cases most of the time. And when they consider the possibility of formalizing those arrangements as the war goes on and the alliances are really crystallized, the response from the State Department or from, from diplomats on the ground is, don't rock the boat. We're getting what we want in practice, so we don't need to put it in writing. Like, we'll never get it in writing. And so the fact that status of forces agreements, which are become the common practice for establishing governance arrangements at U.S. bases around the world from the Cold War on, do just that. They put in writing what the agreement is around jurisdiction is really interesting to me because the lesson in Latin America over and over again seemed to be like, if we just don't formalize it, we can keep getting what we what we want out of this situation. Um, so that's always been something that I found kind of curious. Thank you so much. We're receiving a lot of comments, um, everyone's. Thank you. Very informative about this talk. Um, we wanted to thank you on behalf of class for, for accepting this invitation. We wanted to thank Professor Margaret Chowning for coming today virtually and Kyle Jackson. Um, we've been sharing on the chat the promo code 
that we have uh, to get the book and we can't wait to read it um, and to have you all one more time with us in class. Thank you all for coming. Thanks everyone. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 